Hello and welcome to Ever the Optimist, the podcast where we discuss the news of tomorrow today. I'm your host, Eric, who you can find at wyethdigital.com slash optimist. That is W-Y-E-T-H-D-I-G-I-T-A-L dot com slash optimist. You can also like Ever the Optimist on Facebook. And as always, you can find links and discussions of show topics in our show notes at wyethdigital.com slash optimist. Uh, I wanted to give you guys a little bit of an update after the last show. I wasn't intending to take another break, but my sound equipment seems to have had some sort of malfunction. I'm not sure what exactly it is, but I'm thinking I'm beginning to narrow it down to the microphone. Anyway, I'm using the in uh, built-in microphone in my computer. Uh, hopefully it won't sound too bad. I will work on it to make sure it doesn't. Anyway, so let's jump right into this week's show. Coming up on Future Fail, we're going to be looking at fantastic failed inventions. These are things that people actually conceived of and came up with, and they were resounding bombs. But first, let's get to the question of the week. Question of the week. Coming at us from nature.com is an article talking about a temporal cloak that can erase data from history. Now, the gist of this is um, scientists at Imperial College of London proposed to create a temporal cloak that uh, could carve out short windows in time during which operations can be carried out unnoticed. Their work built on the principles behind invisibility cloaks, which hide objects in space by channeling light rays around them. When viewed from a distance, light appears to have traveled along a straight line without having hit any intervening objects. Uh, similarly, McCall and colleagues suggested that by pulling light waves apart in time and then compressing them back together, it should be possible to create time pockets in which to cloak events. In theory, this could enable a whole new level of security for data transmission along optical fibers. So my question and the question of the week here is do you think in light of the recent NSA hacking scandals or and not really hacking but I guess monitoring scandals um, and really this has been going on for quite some time let's not pretend it's even that recent okay let's just get that out in the air okay this has been happening since the Patriot Act and quite frankly it bugs the heck out of me so would this be something that if it were commercially available would you use this or is this something that's just gonna be left to the government um, personally, if I could have some sort of a quantum cloaking device for anything that I have said, I would probably take it. And I, and I don't have anything to hide. But, you know, it's my thoughts, my words, and if I want to have a private conversation, I think it should be private. That's my feeling. Alright, so what do you think? Chime in in the comments and let me know. Future Dick UPI.com is taking us back across the pond to jolly old England. What? What? Oh, chop. Uh, yeah, we're going to be talking about deflector shield technology. Yes, that's right. Um, there's uh, the, the scientists at Rutherford Appleton Laboratory say they've been testing a lightweight system to protect astronauts from harmful radiation on long voyages, such as a round trip to Mars. Uh, who would be exposed to cosmic rays and high-energy particles from the sun contained in the solar storms. So although shielding technology has not quite reached the level portrayed in Star Trek on television, the British scientists say it could be possible. St 
Star Trek has great ideas, they just don't have to build it. Ruth Banford, lead researcher for the Deflector Shield Project at RAL, told CNN, The radiation problem is a potential showstopper, she said. I'm very concerned that the radiation issue is not being addressed very publicly, and it's absolutely key. So yeah, take a quick uh, look at UPI.com for the full story, and let me know what you think in the comments. Shields up! I don't know about you, but this is one of my favorite segments. Okay, so we're going to be looking at WebUrbanist.com. They've compiled a list of 10 wacky failed inventions from the past. So let's take a quick look at a couple of the things that people had in mind for our future. And be thankful that they didn't stick. Okay, first on my list, flying tanks. You heard right. Flying tanks. This concept came about before militaries were robust enough to carry tanks to their destinations. Um, anyway, military bigwigs had the brilliant idea of putting wings on tanks. They could be towed directly to the battle zone and easily flown to exactly the right spot. Although initial tests were successful, the winged tanks never made it into popular use. Better planes were de developed first and are still used today to airdrop tanks at their destinations. Now here's one I still sort of expect to see today. Uh, gas shooting riot cars. Uh, in the 1930s, um, the world supposedly, according to the urban web urbanist, was not quite so politically correct as it is today. And if a group of people gathered together to protest, for example, the police could mow them down with a humongous fortified vehicle complete with poisonous gas streams. This hulking machine was patented in 1938, but thank goodness never built. Perhaps cooler heads prevailed once the powers that be thought long and hard about the implications. Of course, I would like to take a little exception to Web Urbanist at this point and point out that we do have um, microwave-powered crowd suppression vehicles in which you basically heat up the crowd with microwaves and get them to disperse. Uh, tear gas cannons, rubber bullets, you know, just ask the Occupy guys, they'll tell you all about it. Okay, here's one that looks just downright terrifying. I think I would have nightmares if this thing were in my home. A phone answering robot. According to Web Urbanist, built in 1964, back when we as a society seemed to share a collective fascination with robots that would do our household chores, this phone answering robot was not nearly as functional as it might look at first. Its abilities were limited to picking up the phone and putting the phone back down. It couldn't act as a message recorder or even a message player. They say it looks cool, but like I said, this thing would give me nightmares. Seriously. Check out WebUrbanist.com to see the picture. Class half empty. At newsdiscovery.com, they are quoting the Associated Press uh, talking about a terrible starvation among puffins in the Western Atlantic along the Canadian and East, you know, Eastern United States seaboards. Uh, the survival rate of fledgling puffins on Maine's two largest puffin colonies plunged last summer, and puffins are in declining health at the largest puffin colony in the Gulf on a Canadian island about 10 miles off eastern Maine. 
Dozens of emaciated birds were found washed ashore in Massachusetts and Bermuda this last winter, likely victims of starvation. On Seal Island in Maine, a National Wildlife Refuge 20 miles offshore that's home to about a thousand puffins, only 31% of the laid eggs produced fledglings, down from the five-year average of 77%. That is a huge drop. Similar numbers were experienced at Matanicus Island, a nearby island with more than 800 birds. Excuse me, that's Matanicus Rock. Uh, the AP's Clark Canfield reports that instead of feeding their chicks herring, the puffin parents were attempting to feed them butterfish, which were too big for the chicks to swallow. Butterfish is a more southerly species of fish that has become more abundant in the Gulf of Maine as waters have warmed, or perhaps more accessible to seabirds because it, is, it has moved higher up in the water column. According to Steve Kress of the National Audubon Society's Seabird Restoration Program, Exceptionally warm temperatures in the Gulf of Maine last year may have prompted an earlier than usual phyloplankton bloom, resulting in an early season boost in numbers of butterfish. Now, it's a little too early to know if, if this is going to be something that's permanent or a fluke or whatever, but, and, and I do try to stay apolitical in this podcast, um, but you know what? What really bugs me is this whole global warming slash climate change thing being treated as it is if it is still a political conversation. It is not. The debate is over. With the exception of the Daily Mail and Rupert Murdoch and about 4% of the scientists in the world, um, the debate is over. Okay, Climate change is real. It's happening. You can't deny that. And it is very, very likely human-related. Glass half full. And now to leave us on a more positive environmental note, from readingeagle.com comes a story about Ken Niedemeyer, who likes to rebuild coral reefs. He's been doing this for more than a decade, and recreational divers are volunteering in the effort. Says Ken, we are trying to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Quote, unquote. His Coral Re Restoration Foundation has planted four coral nurseries off the shores of Florida Keys. The foundation offers workshops and diving tips for recreational divers who help by cleaning and preparing new coral for planting. Ken says we are trying to get people to realize that it was a lot better at, and it can be brought back again. Uh, divers helping out with the work first get a crash course in everything about corals. They learn that coral reefs are experiencing a rapid decline, particularly in the Caribbean. It's not as magical as it once was, and it's going downhill, said Niedemeyer. The decline of coral has dire implications. Okay, Coral reefs, much like a rainforest, support a huge amount of biodiversity. They attract tourism and commercial fishing, and act as a natural barrier to coastal erosion during storms. In the Florida Keys, staghorn coral, cylindrical branches, and elkhorn coral, antler-like branches, bear local face local extinction. Both are listed as threatened under the Endangered Species Act, and the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration has proposed listing them as endangered. Margaret Miller, an ecologist with the National Marine Fisheries Service of NOAA, says corals are dying rapidly, much more rapidly than we believe they have in the past, which is a problem for sustaining the populations. Caribbean coral reefs are already dramatically changed from the way we understand they should look because 50 to 80 percent of the coral has already been lost for most Caribbean reefs. Now, Niedemeyer's four coral nurseries are thriving. 
but Miller cautioned that while the nurseries are helping us keep pace with negative decline, there needs to be a concerted effort to address larger problems, such as global warming and the chemical makeup of the ocean, if coral reefs throughout the world are going to survive. Well, that wraps up the show for today. I'm glad you tuned in, and I hope you will continue to tune in. I will continue to work on my audio problems. Uh, new microphone or new soundboard, one of the two. I'm not sure which. Maybe both. Who knows? In the meantime, remember to check out wyethdigital.com optimist and like us on Facebook. This is Eric, and I'm Edward the Optimist.